Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. After reading former Victoria Police Detective Inspector Wayne Snapper Rotherham's CV, it's hard to know where to begin. Snapper started in uniform and was hospitalised three times in three months. He shot and wounded a guy and was forced to mind him in hospital. He was responsible for an extradition to London as a detective and worked in the major crime squad on the Russell Street and Turkish Consulate bombings and the infamous Mad Max. He also uncovered corruption in the job. At one stage, a druggie broke into his home and threatened his family. Snapper also did a stint in the Solomon Islands, Cambodia, Bangladesh and Samoa. He was an officer in charge at DTS and more recently has turned his hand to guiding people through the rigours of the Kokoda track. Hi, Snapper, and welcome back to The Crime Couch. Good afternoon, Michelle. Thank you. Returning to your last few years in the job, including when a druggie broke into your home, what's that like when a crook targets your family? What sort of impact does that have on you in the job? Interesting. That example, uh, I I was a single parent and, and I was living with my son and daughter. She was 15, he's 16. This paranoid druggie lived next door, so it wasn't through the investigations. He just knew I was a policeman. Uh, Parkdale Shopping Centre, a lady on a train saw a guy climb up through a second-floor window with a big bowie knife, and she rang triple O. So the police have come down and cordoned off the shopping centre. It was a Sunday. Now, at this stage, I was on the foreshore having a run, and I came back and saw the detective sergeant at the barricade and I said oh what's happening here he said oh told me about the evidence and I I said which window and he pointed out I said that's my bedroom he's gone oh my god and I said my daughter's in there in the house so I bolted and he grabbed me because I've broken the cordon but I broke the tackle went around the corner and here's the druggie with the knife uh, and my daughter talking to him and she, it turns out she had been talking to him for about 15 minutes, 30 minutes. And one of the questions she asked him, why do you want to kill my dad? And she was 15. Anyway, we subsequently arrested him. And unbelievably, I got a phone call at the end of the day to say he's got bail. And I thought we we went and stayed in a motel for a couple of nights and then we were shifted to an address in Port Melbourne which just threw our lives into chaos because the kids both had school in Mentone and here we are in the heart of Port Melbourne away from their friends away from their school so it started a really really bad time in our lives what sort of impact does that have on you when you're working in the job and someone knows that you're a copper and a neighbour targets you, like what sort of impact does that have on you personally and professionally? Well, two things I always rely on for gauging people, and that's trust and respect both ways. When I lose either one, uh, I 
I put up this barrier and it's very hard for me to maintain good close friends and relationships. That's been an outcome of that. If you lose my trust or respect, it's very hard for me to move on from that. And, and, and it has cost me dearly in the years, but that's the consequence of that sort of things that happened to us in policing. Snapper, how come you never joined the SOG or the TIG? Because you seem to have had that physicality and you're certainly a, a very fit person. How come you never went down that sort of path? It did cross my mind at one stage, but when I went into the counter-terrorist section, uh, my office was on the fifth floor at Russell Street next to the SOG. So I had a lot to do with the SOG. I used to run with them, train with them. Uh, and I think I actually had the benefit of both worlds. I got to do some work with them, meet some amazing people um, without having to go through the initial training, which I believe is hell. So that's the reason I didn't go there. I knew them well enough and I just didn't think I had it in me to do that training course that those guys go through and girls. You led the search at one stage for Minister Tim Holding when he wandered off and became lost in Falls Creek. You're an, an acting superintendent then. I remember working on this story as a journalist. It was such a strange scenario, wasn't it? A minister wandering off like that. It, it was, um, but what really happened, he was in the hut and there were other people in the hut and it was a beautiful blue sky day and he wanted to go up to the summit, so he went off. But the cloud came in he got disorientated, and as he was wait, making his way back to the hut, he slipped and fell, and fell very hard. When he got up in the blizzard, he walked the wrong way. He walked away from the car park and walked deeper into the mountain, became disorientated, and hence the three-day search. What pressure are you on as you, you know, when you're leading an investigation such as that and it's involving a high-profile person? What pressure is on you as leading that investigation, Snapper? There was a hell of a lot of pressure. I had ministers call me, I had commissioners call me wanting answers. And in the end, I had to say, I can't answer these questions. I've got an operation to do. I, I have 80 people up above the snow line that I'm responsible for. So they sent up a deputy commissioner and assistant commissioner, one to look after media and one to look after the family so I could focus on my job. And it eventually ended up concluding and it was successful and he was okay. Uh, yes, it was a great outcome. Uh, I thank the SES and the search and rescue guys for that. It was a, We were lucky to find him alive and it was because of those resources, those people, many of them volunteers could have left their homes um, and it was the SES that spotted him, thank goodness, uh, and we got him out. So very lucky man. You were also in charge of the fires in the northeast during the Black Saturday. What are your key focuses on in a fire investigation and, and how does that differ, say, to a criminal investigation? Interesting question. Fortunately but unfortunately, in our area, we had two fatalities, whereas the rest of the state had a lot more. I think it was because we were pretty well used to wildfires up in the northeast and we had pretty good processes in place but because of the Black Saturday fires each property before it got released 
had to be signed off by the coroner. And the investigation that we had to do was extremely thorough because the coroner wanted to know, well, how do you know there's not a backpacker in that house that hasn't been identified? How do you know that hasn't been a homicide? How do you know there is a missing person, etc.? So we had to forensically examine, uh, not me personally, the troops, and the detectives at Wangaratta did this and uh, they did an amazing job. So of all the state, we were the first to have the houses released by the coroner and he used that model for the rest of the, the, the property. And that's because of the, the commitment by the detectives. They were very thorough. Is there a, a lot of circumstances in a fire investigation that you can't control? My forte has never been fire investigation. The the arson squad, I used to admire them. They'd come in and say the seat of the fire was here, and that's all forensic and science. If we investigating them, bombings and things like that, totally different uh, avenues of inquiry. So it was not a field that I I became an expert in. When I worked with the the arson squad and people like that, I was amazed with their, their, their skills. They're extraordinary at being able to tap into the source of the fire, aren't they? Absolutely. And, and that's all science and forensic. After 36 years, I think, in policing Snapper, including working at DTS, you pulled the pin. So why did you pull the pin? What prompted you? Look, I'd done the 36 years. I was up in living in Wodonga, working at Wangaratta, and there's a policy in place at the time for officers to be rotated every three years. And and at that time, I was going to be moved down to Rosanna. It just got me thinking, okay, I'm at the crossroad. Do I look at shifting careers or do I retire or do I go to Rosanna? And it wasn't a hard decision. Um, I always wanted to own a restaurant. Uh, There was a business for sale in northeast Victoria and I went and put an offer in and it was accepted. So I went back to the commissioner who said, look, okay, um, instead of Rosanna, I can send you to Seymour. And I said, look, I'm sorry, um, I'm cooking din sims for the next six years. What a great way to put it. And do you regret any elements or do you miss any elements of the job? Not at all, uh, apart from the camaraderie. But I mentioned earlier about friends and trust and respect and and I have a network of friends that have been friends for 36 years and and, uh, I trust them with my life with my family's life and we catch up outside the policing environment all retired now but never never once at any of our functions or catch-ups do we complain about the job or whinge about people we look back on the positives of what it achieved Um, of course there was a lot of uh, hardship and things like that, but that's part of the job. As the Minister recently said, we learnt to roll with the punches. Unfortunate phrase, though, in that term, but uh, yes, I hear you. Snapper, you worked overseas in Solomon Islands, Cambodia, Bangladesh and Samoa. What was that like? What did that give you that, say, working in Australia couldn't? Okay, I opened up a world perspective. Uh, when I was a divisional detective, I was near, my focus was very narrow. And then the major crime squad was statewide. And then when I got into the international policing side of things, you look at global perspectives and you just keep growing and keep, keep on learning. Each of those postings were totally different. Some was project work, some was training, and some was leadership management. But it was an amazing experience. What did it teach you about yourself? 
good question. Um, I thought of myself, I looked at the troops. Let's look back at the Solomon Islands. And those police officers from the Australia Police Forces and the South Pacific, I had to put them out on a remote island for three months at a time. Three months. And they were allowed once a week to have 10 minutes on a sat phone to contact their family. And I respected those people so much. I went out for a week here and a week there, and I, I really, really struggled being remotely away from the family. But you're in a village in a leadership position. It was just remarkable. The Cambodian example, what did it teach me? I had to write the framework for the country's uh, crime prevention and community safety strategy. And the government, through AusAid, uh, implemented that strategy. And then 12 months later, I was asked to go back and sign off and finish that strategy because it closed down. And to see the change in policing in Cambodia was remarkable. And to sit back and think that I actually, uh, with a fabulous team of Khmer people, including the police, could make such a difference in a country so far away, I was very proud of that. Is that the achievement overseas that you're the most proud of? Yes, uh, I, I think in Cambodia. One of my counterparts in the first instance, his name was Hewitt Chan, uh, couldn't speak in good English. But there's not many aeroplanes in Cambodia, so we had to drive everywhere and we'd be in the car for six or seven hours. And I asked him one day about his knowledge or experiences of the Pol Pot regime. And he looked at me and he said, why do you want to know that? And I said, well, it's interesting. It's worldwide news. He said, really? He couldn't comprehend that people outside of Cambodia was interested. Anyway, he put together a document of 40 pages, and which could be a book in itself. And I was absolutely flabbergasted and humbled by the fact that he was working for me, having him and his family gone through such horrible, horrible circumstances. And he forgave. He forgave. I, I can't understand how any of the Khmer people did, but they did. And I learned a lot from those cultures about how we have to move on from some things that happen that we're not happy about. It might impact on your culture or your own life. And I use that uh, imprimatur to look at things and go, okay, all right, well, that's happened. There's others in this world that have got a lot more to be complaining about than I have. So uh, having that in my mind, I, I think I'm very lucky that, that I'm able to move on. When you talk about it, you look at the religions over there and Buddhism is one of them. So that would be an implicit part of who they are. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and the Hinduism, uh, I, I used to often go to the, the religious ceremonies with them and take part. And I was very humbled that, to see that they would accept me. Those cultures, having gone through those horrible things in my lifetime, can still get on with life. 
you got shot also in Cambodia, and I think your partner got shot. What what actually happened, Snapper? I was working on that project, and and Cambodia was a, was still reeling from the end of the Pol Pot regime, and. You know, for example, we got pulled up in a car one day and, and I'd had a glass of wine. I thought, oh, what's going to happen here? And I said, don't worry about that. They're looking for guns and hand grenades. A hand grenade exploded in the hotel opposite me, killing uh, two or three whilst I was there. I was working with a HR consultant from the World Bank. Uh, she was Canadian. And she was going back uh, home the following day. And we weren't allowed out of our compound, one up. And she said, would you like to come out and join me for dinner? It's my last night. I said, yeah, sure. So we walked down, had dinner. And as we were walking back, I heard this sound, because it was a big crowd, very busy on the main street, on the promenade in Phnom Penh. And I felt this sharp pain on my chest. And then I heard the noise again, and another sharp pain. And I still hadn't understood what it was. And then I heard the third one. So I looked across to my counterpart and she was lying on the ground and her face was covered in blood. And I've gone, my God. So I've picked her up and went back away from where I thought the threat was coming. And I purloined a couple of guys on motorcycles and jumped on and said, quick, take us to the nearest hospital. Unfortunately, she got shot uh, it was a low calibre, it was just under the left eye. Uh, so lucky she didn't use, lose the, the eye. But it, it was interesting times. Um, unbeknownst to us, this was a day or two before September 11th, and the American government immediately closed down their consulate, so they must have known something was afoot. The Australian embassy or consulate at the time, the ambassador said to me, oh my God, mate, did you get the bastards? <laughs> that was how Australians dealt with things back in those days. You've also, since you retired, you even did this before you reti- you finished retiring, you've been a regular walker and a guide in the Kokoda track. In fact, you've done the track 14 times. What keeps pulling you back? I... And not a fan of bushwalking and camping, to be honest. But my father, uh, who grew up here in Jamison, uh, was one of the Kokoda track veterans. He was one of the Chocos, the so-called Chocos. And he turned 20 during the Battle of Isharava. A friend of mine was working in Papua New Guinea by the name of John Rennie, uh, the son of Jack Rennie, who trained Lionel Rose. And he invited me across to do a trek of the Kokoda track. When we got to Usharava and there was nothing there, John read out a story about my father and how he turned 20 during the battle. And I really became emotional. I'm standing on this hallowed ground with my dad who was 20. I never recalled my father as a 20. You just don't think of that. And John said, we need to have a memorial built here. We have to recognise this place. Anyway, that started the journey. We... Uh, with a group of other dedicated volunteers, um, had seven veterans identified and we flew them back, plane and helicopter and hike. We did a survey and over years both governments accepted our findings and have built the wonderful memorial at Ishrava. What a fantastic achievement. You must be very proud of that. I'm very proud of the Papua New Guinean people. It's their country. Uh, 
We didn't invade, they were invited. We went over to help them, but to this day, they still support us in Australia. So it's it's the Papua New Guinea people I'm proud of for protecting and probably saving people like my father. You've also done the track with your son and your daughter a couple of times. What was that experience like? The most fulfilling experience ever experienced. The first trip we did was 10 days. And this is where I get a bit emotional. Uh, Of all the things we've been speaking about, it's these types of things. Because it was a hard, hard 10 days. It rained the entire 10 days. And here's my little girl and, and my son. Uh, carrying their own gear through these atrocious conditions. And at the end, the local people had this beautiful flower arrangement archway for us to walk through. And walking through there is just an amazing experience. But I grabbed Robert and Erica off to the side and we sat down. And I said to them, you know, you're going to go through a lot of hardships in life. You're never going to do anything as hard as what you've just done. And I said, if you ever come to a situation in your life where you actually really are hurt or down or something, just think about walking through this gate and think, I can do this, I can do anything. And we often talk about it because uh, I've done it four times with them now through that archway. And Erica just pushes it off and says, oh, it's easy. But uh, she does that. Uh, And we'd love to do it again together. Do you think you'll do it again in the future? I have been asked if in 2023 I'd like to become a guide again. I'm a little bit reluctant because I'm getting on now. It's not an easy walk, but I know I'll say yes. Uh, It's in the blood. Uh, It just means I have to train a hell of a lot harder and Jamison's the perfect spot to train. So the answer is 2023, come along, I'll probably guide three or four trips. You seem to really like adventure. What does that do for you, Snapper? I don't know. I've never thought about that. It's not... I, I I don't do these things to seek adventure. I am a creature of circumstance and... When one door closes, for whatever reason, I don't sit on my hands and whinge about it and go, oh, geez, that's that's just bad luck or or wish that didn't happen. I've always got something happening. I go, okay, right, sharp, right turn and move on. And these things just happen to be the consequences of changing. For example, when I got out of the shop, I went over to Thailand for the only intention of catching up with one of my brothers and I finished up staying there for a year and a half. I bought a motorcycle. Uh, I scuba dived all over the Andaman Sea and uh, I did a cruise and and did, I think, about 15,000 kilometres around Cambodia and Thailand. Now, I didn't go over there with that intention. The opportunity arose when I was there and I took it. Snapper, how would you sum up your career now in policing you've been out of the job now for a while what reflections do you have about the job now and how do you see it i did what i i that was my job and as you said it is it is a job it was a hard job but then so's working in where i'm working at the moment different type of heart 
I just have to go back to the people that I worked with. My greatest mentor, I outranked him two or three. And to this day, uh, there's a group of us look up to this fellow. Mark, thank you, because you've um, done so much for all of us. And I know you're um, actively engaged in a life-saving activity at the moment. And I think I've been out of the job for 12 years and his leadership abilities and those of many, many others still stand up in the community and that's what I admire. They weren't just crook catchers. They, they were, we're, we're very lucky to live in a safe society. Look at me here, I'm very fortunate to be living in, in the country area and that's what the job allowed me to do. What has retirement taught you? When my dad was forced to retire at 60, he was an old man. Uh, I retired, I think it was about about 53 or something. I'm now 63. Uh, and I uh, are as fit as a fiddle. So what, it, what I think it's taught me is that life doesn't end when you retire. There is so much out there. Uh, and that's what I encourage people to do. A lot of, a lot of people are a bit reluctant to retire. They, they become reliant on whatever job it is. No, get out. If, you'll know when it's time. Get out, and there's plenty out there. And life—that's uh, what retirement has ta- taught me. I did 36 years in an organisation I loved, and now I'm uh, in the next phase of my life. What's next for you now, Snapper? Well, if I um, my, my aim—I'm renovating a 150-year-old building at the moment. I aim to have that completed by April next year then back over to Cambodia. A good friend of mine, Rod McDonald, who was the first to get shot by um, Mad Max in, in 86, he is working uh, on the ground over there, looking after villages in, in a charity sense. And Rod and I think we can do a bit more to these villages. So my plan is just to go over and buy another motorcycle, finally make my way to Sea and Rip, and we'll see what we can do. We don't know what we can achieve, but we just know that we have the goal to achieve. We'll see what we can do once we get there. Well, Snapper, it's been a delight sitting with you again today on the Crime Couch. Thanks for sitting with me and, and talking about your experiences in the job and outside. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson and I look forward to your company next time on The Crime Catch.